0: to Cancer Talk, the podcast that explores the potential of integrative medicine in cancer care. Integrative medicine is an inclusive approach that combines the full resources of conventional medicine with a broad range of lifestyle and complementary approaches to address the multiple needs of those with cancer in body, in mind and in spirit. Each episode of Cancer Talk, oncologist, Dr. Penny Kekajoglu and I, Robin Daly of Yes to Life, will be building bridges between conventional medicine and a host of other therapies and practices with the aim of improving the care of people with cancer in the UK.
1: Hello, I'm Penny. I'm a clinical oncologist in the National Health Service and clinical director, and I treat patients with cancer using different modalities, including chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and holistic approaches. I welcome you all to Cancer Talk, and um, I'm looking forward to joining more specialists to talk about integrative medicine.
0: Hello, I'm Robin Daly, founder and chairman of Yes to Life, the UK charity helping people with cancer to learn about and use integrative medicine.
1: Each episode of Cancer Talk, Robin and I will be jointly hosting guest specialists from the world of integrative medicine with the aim of exploring the potential of improving the health of patients through their particular skills and experiences.
0: Great to be back doing another episode of Cancer Talk.
1: Hi, Robin, I'm looking forward to this one.
0: Yeah, so we got uh, the wonderful Dr. Carol Granger with us today. Um, Carol's a highly experienced nutritional therapist with a particular interest in cancer. She's also a committee member of the British Society for Integrative Oncology, which is where it all happens for professionals. So um, big welcome to you, Carol.
2: It's great to join you. It's really, I'm I'm really enthusiastic about using this as a format for spreading the news about what's going on in the world of nutrition, especially for people with a cancer diagnosis.
0: Excellent. Excellent.
2: Fantastic. Um,
1: So, Carol, can you introduce yourself in terms of how you got to be a nutritional expert? What's your background?
2: Okay. Well, I actually started my professional life working in mainstream biomedical sciences. I mean, I was a biochemist and a microbiologist. So I worked for the first sort of 20 years of my life working in a, a laboratory I ran a microbiology laboratory. I worked for a medical technology company, was technical director for a company that made devices used in various aspects of medical care. Um, I've worked in various sort of fields. It's always been in sort of biochemistry and microbiology. And I did my, my master's on uh, endot- on microbiology and looked at endotoxin. And then I had an opportunity when I was just turned 40 to to retrain. And it was one of those opportunities where I thought, well, I'm actually going to do something that has always interested me. And part of my work when I was working in a medical company was actually looking at um, artificial nutrition support, so parenteral and enteral nutrition. And I did a lot of studies in nutrition. That's where I actually started studying the kind of nuts and bolts and biochemistry of nutrition. So when I had an opportunity to retrain, That's what I decided to do. So I did a nutritional therapy course and that sort of launched me off on a completely different trajectory. But what I've actually found is that over the years, my previous life has kind of caught up with me because of this big interest in the microbiome, which of course is really related to nutrition. So all my experience and knowledge of microbiology is kind of blending back in with nutrition. Um, I've actually been seeing people with a cancer diagnosis since about 2006. And since then I got more and more interested in it. So I decided to go back to university part-time and complete my doctorate. And that was actually looking at the practice of nutritional therapy for people with a cancer diagnosis. So that's really where I kind of came from. Um, I see people with a cancer diagnosis, but also people with other related conditions like inflammatory bowel disease that puts them at risk of cancer. And that's really where I kind of come from
1: into this field. That sounds like an incredible journey.
2: Mm. And
1: are you involved with research as well?
2: So I do. Yes, I do some research. Um, I First of all, I work with uh, Penny Brom. So I volunteer as a scientific and clinical advisor for them. So there are various sort of projects going on with them. But I'm also co-chair of the Research Council for Complementary Medicine. And in that role, we... Coordinate research um, rather than actually launching it. Although we are actually in the process of launching some research that we're involved yeah. in, and then the the other area that I'm involved in is there's a really excellent collaboration within the NHS research arm, the National Institute for Health Research. They have a collaboration on nutrition and cancer, so that's a research program, and I'm one of the professional contributors to that, and have been for. It's been running about three years now. So I, I was a co-author on a paper on nutrition practice within the NHS for people with a cancer diagnosis. So I've got my, dare I say, my fingers in different sorts of research pies, although I don't do any lab research anymore, but I have done that in the past. So Fantastic.
1: Well, it's yeah. great to have you in the BSIO. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I'm just interested to hear your view of looking back. Obviously, you've uh, been involved long enough to have a bit of an overview in how the quality Mm -hmm. and the volume of nutritional evidence has developed in the recent years.
2: Yeah, it's actually quite astounding because in the last couple of years, some areas of research in nutrition that were actually considered to be sort of fringe, if I dare say that, have Mm -hmm. actually become much more widely accepted because of the wealth of evidence behind them. And this is often what happens in science is that something kind of trickles along on the margins until somebody picks up a large body of research and then it becomes more well understood. And I think first of all, the microbiome has been a big area of better understanding. The other area that I feel has been really well understood now and very widely accepted now is this idea of problems with gut permeability. So when I did my nutritional therapy training going back to kind of early 2000s, when people were talking about leaky gut, I remember having a conversation uh, with a a doctor about that. And they said, oh, it's nonsense. It doesn't happen. It's rubbish. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll think about that. But actually now we know there's all of this research about gut permeability, about endotoxin, about liver function and, you know, all of these things. So. That's a big area. I think the microbiome bit's really important, but also a lot of interest in modifying diet and outcomes. And that's really where there's a a lot of research come on in the last few years. So and hopefully we'll be able to cover some of those sort of main main areas tonight.
0: Mm, Definitely yeah so well why didn't we weigh straight in with that uh, what you were just saying about diets because yeah uh, just a very short while ago diet was completely off the radar of uh, sort of mainstream science, but uh seems like the ketogenic diet was sort of got people's interest and um uh, I'd like to ask your opinion of why that one particularly uh, attracted interest and uh, and where we've got to today in in research into diets in in the mainstream.
2: So, that, that's a really interesting one. The keto diet and cutting carbohydrates or modifying the carbohydrate content of diet is really important. And there's a number of aspects of it. So, I think that keto diets have been around for a long time. I mean, they, they've been around for over 100 years in medical practice. I mean, first used in children with epilepsy in the early 1900s. But in recent years, there's been a number of really well-designed but small studies of keto diets and for example there's actually one going on here in the uk in the northwest of england run under the the guidance of a neurological center so they are being looked at more carefully i think that there's areas of the ketogenic diet that are still really not well understood and also they're not really well applied in practice so to give you an example the Atkins diet is technically that's a keto diet that's probably the one that people think of and if you go into google and you put keto diet you probably get linked to all kinds of atkins type websites where you can buy keto products mm-hmm. but it's possible a very badly designed keto diet and what we know from the research is that if people do low carb diets and they don't get it right, then they can actually be doing themselves more harm than good. And I think that's where much better understanding of keto diets is coming through now in the research. And kind of linking back to the microbiome, if people do a badly designed keto diet, they'll actually have a worse impact on their microbiome than if they eat what they might have considered to be a carb rich diet. So it's actually all about getting it right, getting the right nutrients to replace carbs if you're going to do a, a low carb diet. So I think the keto diet is a, is, it's a really, it's a really important area to look at. And I think when people talk about keto, it's actually important to define what they mean and understand who it's being used for. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, there's there's a few studies. So in preparation for tonight, I had a sort of a look at what's come out in the literature very recently to answer a few questions. So I would say if somebody said, what is it about low carb diets that you think we need to think about first? I'd say, first of all, are they safe? Because there are lots of questions about safety. And if somebody does something like a very high protein, high fat diet, something that looks like bacon and eggs at every meal and no vegetables, that actually is not very safe. Okay? Um, but in terms of the bigger questions about low carb diets, if I just mentioned some of the things that people thought low carb diets might do. So there's always been this worry that a low carb or keto diet might actually raise cholesterol. Right. But actually what we know is that the opposite is true if you get the right kind of keto diet. And in fact, just looking at a a couple of papers recently, one was just published by a group called Friedland, Stephen Friedland, um, who's done a study. And actually he used the low carb diet in a group of people, group of men with prostate cancer. And what he did was he monitored the research there, monitored low density lipoprotein, which is often thought of as bad cholesterol and also triglycerides. And what they found was that on the low carb diet, people's cholesterol profile actually improved because they were following the right kind of model of low-carb diet. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, what they also found is this is a group of men with prostate cancer or the prostate cancer diagnosis, and they were looking at their doubling for PSA, which is a marker that's used to follow prostate cancer. And what they actually found was that the men on the low-carb diet actually had a longer doubling time which means it took longer for their PSA to double because that is the kind of that's the monitoring level that is done in prostate cancer this doubling time so that's a nice study that showed safety because it reduced cholesterol it didn't actually increase it and it seemed to improve other biomarkers. So that's actually really quite a nice study and it's an elegant study and it's been done in humans because so much research is done in laboratory animals, which of course are not humans. That's incredible results, Um, Carol.
1: There is another area which is around urological malignancies and we know that the keto diet has has got some evidence there. Do you know of any recent studies or any research around high-grade gliomas?
2: In brain tumours, yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting area. And in fact, that's where probably the strongest evidence is with, with brain cancers. And that's, that's where the most accepted use of a keto diet is in mainstream healthcare. Um, so it does appear that for many people with a glioma, glioblastoma, that following a keto diet may work very well for them. Um, the, the, uh, the study that's been done at the Walton Neurosurgical Center up in the Northwest, that's actually managing people with brain cancers. So it looks very promising. Um, interestingly, I have just had a referral from, uh, from a neurosurgeon uh, for somebody to manage on a low carb diet. So there is increasing interest in it. I think that it's still, it's gonna be some while before it's very widely used. What I would say is that um, the the research there is strongest for gliomas, but also there are some other areas that are still unanswered. So we know that there is actually a charity that supports children following low-carb diets, and they need very specific support from specialists. So Matthew's Friends, which is a charity that's operating in the UK, um, they actually support children and young adults following the keto. Diet. So these are children with brain tumours. So it's an area where I think there's so much to learn and there's a lot to gain for patients who are living with those very serious diagnoses. Mm-hmm. And
1: as you say, for, for people who are
2: listening now about
1: the safety of those diets, I mean, what would you advise a clinician who is not involved, he's not a nutrition specialist, but wants to offer that to patients?
2: What should yeah. We do? yeah, so I think um, there are a few groups of people I would uh, be very cautious about. So somebody that, for example, has renal insufficiency, that would be some areas where I would be thinking again about that. And that's because a very well designed low carb keto diet should contain a lot of vegetables And that's to keep the microbiome healthy. And of course, that means that the potassium load can be high. So that would be my first thought would be I wouldn't be referring on somebody that had very compromised renal function and potassium retention. That would be that would be something that I would want to I would want to be very careful with. I think that there are some good resources. First of all, within hospitals, in a few hospitals in the UK, there will be ketogenic dietitians. There may be dietitians that are supporting. For example, children that are following the keto diet for management of epilepsy. But particularly if, if there isn't that resource, then to look for a, a qualified nutritional therapist that's experienced with these sorts of diets. But what's really important is the medical liaison. It's important that the nutritional therapist, nutritionist or dietitian that's managing and advising that patient um, is in contact regularly for for monitoring with that with that patient. Mm. I think one of the group of people who have seen struggle somewhat with low carb diets are people with uh, that have had colorectal cancer and that have had significant reduction in in bowel length so people who've had a lot of surgery um, then they struggle I and mean, in people with an ileostomy then the high fat can actually be a problem so it's really it's the right diet for the right patient Mm -hmm. Uh, that that's really what what's um what's worth looking at and actually just to just to mention in terms of people who are thinking about cancer prevention and low carb because there's a kind of spectrum of, of carbohydrate intake so at the one end you've got a kind of high carb diet which doesn't suit many people and especially if that's a lot of refined carbs. At the far end is something that is technically ketogenic, so the body's burning fats and not burning glucose. But there's, that's a spectrum. And what the research suggests is that people are, that are at risk of pancreatic cancer, for example, they would actually do better if they followed a much lower carbohydrate diet. And there is some, new, some research from this year that's actually looked at the risk of pancreatic cancer Versus carbohydrate intake and glycemic load. I think even if people don't want to go to that full blown keto diet or very low carb, there are still many people that would benefit from reducing their carbohydrate intake, particularly looking at glycemic loading. Because, of course, if you have a high glycemic load, and just to kind of put a few words around that, that means if you're having food that releases sugar into the bloodstream very quickly, that means a big load of insulin has to be made to manage it, then that itself is not good. So people going for a lower glycemic diet, that means slow release food, smaller portions of it, then that's much better. And that seems to be linked to a lower risk of pancreatic cancer. That's a
1: great message that, you know, people who cannot do for whatever health reason, a keto diet, they can still do something under their control to reduce the risk of cancer and that is to lower the carbohydrate yeah. amount. That's really great message.
2: Yeah. Okay. And in fact, one last bit on, because I'm a bit of i I'm a bit of a, well, people say I'm a bit of an evangelist about sugar reduction, especially sugar sweetened beverages. And I'm always reminding my nephews and nieces that they're not great for them. And just kind of looking at that risk of colorectal cancer and sugar intake and carbohydrate intake. Again, some new research that's come out. There's a and you know big group of, of patients that have been studied. They looked at 33,000 women, and what they did was looked at their diet in adolescence, and they looked at their rate of developing colorectal cancer. So that's a big study, and what they found was that people that reported having a lot of, particularly sugar sweetened beverages, so that's I'm not going to name brands, but sugar sweetened fizzy drinks and a lot of sugar as in confectionery, chocolate, that sort of thing, particularly in adolescence, that was actually linked to an increased risk of colorectal cancer in midlife. Mm -hmm. And that's really we know that the rates of colorectal cancer are on the rise. And that's why studies like this are very helpful, because if you're in a family where there's a risk of colorectal cancer, and we know it's one of those cancers that can be linked to family history, then one thing, one one measure that you can do to help yourself is to really cut out those sugar-sweetened beverages and added sugar. So cookies, desserts, that kind of thing. It doesn't mean never, but it means they should be a treat, a daily thing.
1: And That's what integrative medicine is about.
2: Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, you're right.
0: It's interesting those uh, sugary drinks they're up there at the top of the list every time aren't they there's something kind of mainstream uh, you know glucose about those drinks where they seem to just create havoc with the system if you drink them regularly
2: I think one of the problems is and uh, you know I'm not kind of being critical of individual companies they all use similar sort of marketing but they mes- they have marketing messages about sports and you know these kind of sports drinks that have got loads of sugar and loads of caffeine in, and people might think that they get a boost from them, but actually they get a big boost and then a crash, and then they end up going for another one. So they they end up getting through so many of them because that sugar spike and fall and spike and fall is terrible for mood, and actually it's terrible for science, for sports performance in many people as well. Mm. So I, I think it's is one yeah one area of uh,
0: great risk i think right um just wanted to come back to the the uh, research around the ketogenic diet Um, one of the things that interests me is to see how often the research seems to be uh, a combination research where actually people are receiving some form of conventional treatment at the same time and so it's not uh, being tested in isolation it is actually an integrative approach if you like it's part of one and uh, that really interests me that, that uh, people are looking to combine it in that way.
2: Yes, that, that's actually a really good point because one of the areas of research about low carb diets is how can you get the best out of chemotherapy by modifying diet? And one of the areas that, again, is under study at the moment is on the days when people have their chemotherapy infusions or have radiotherapy, then mm-hmm. does it benefit? if they have a lower carbohydrate intake. And that does appear that it might work. So that that fits into this idea of intermittent fasting or Mm -hmm. dietary modification around treatment. So these are studies that are still ongoing. Uh, They've been studying over the last few years, so things like the keto lung study that was done in the US. What those have done is they've said, well, on the days when people are having active cancer treatment, does it help them to reduce their carbohydrate intake. The idea being that if you reduce that spare glucose that's floating around in the bloodstream, are you going to make the cancer cells more susceptible to treatment? And it's too early to say whether or not everybody should be doing it, but it's certainly an area where active research is going on. And who knows in five or six years time, people might be advised that when they have chemotherapy, they should be reducing their carbohydrates. Mm. I do have some people that are referred to me with a message for that from, from their oncologist who's saying, actually, this is something to look at, it might benefit you, but I can't help you with that. So it, it's an area of, of interest. Mm. Well, so it's definitely that relation.
1: I do have a few patients who find it beneficial in terms of side effects from chemotherapy. Yes, yeah. during that f- fasting period when they have chemotherapy infusions and they seem to get, although I haven't studied it um, in detail, they seem to get a fewer symptoms. Is that is that something that the research is looking at as well?
2: Yes, that's right. So that's what, the, that's what the research is looking at. So the initial, there were just a few case reports where people had tried this protocol and they reported just anecdotally that they had less nausea and vomiting. And then there've been a few studies that have looked at that. In my own practice, it's something that I discuss with people and I say, this is something that you might think about. And my experience has been feedback from people is that generally they feel better if they eat lighter. So there's kind of a couple of messages. One of them is generally eat less on the day that you're having chemo. Don't starve completely, but eat less, eat lighter, avoid sugary things, avoid refined carbs. And my experience in practice is that people feel better when they do that. And the the early results from studies are looking as if that might be the case. But potentially, and if you look at Valter Longo's work out in California, um, he's actually been doing some animal experimentation as well as human studies. And it does look as if it might actually, perhaps optimize the response that people have to chemo. So it's It's a big area. It's an area that I find is really interesting and encouraging. It's something that people can do for themselves when they're going through chemo to get Um, the best out of it. Of course.
0: Very inspiring. Well, it's, uh, you know, along with uh, exercise, which, uh, you know, it hasn't quite made it in this country in the way that it has in Australia, but nonetheless, this idea that actually people can have a very active part in uh, their treatment in that way is beginning to get on the radar and so that's very hopeful and uh, as, as you're saying that if this becomes something that gets recommended in the way that you just described where oncologists know that this can help and say well i'm not an expert but you can certainly find one uh, that's entirely encouraging and, and changes the landscape entirely i think as to what a cancer treatment looks like mm-hmm.
2: I think that's right. And I think it's actually being, it's giving patients the option. It's saying, see how you get on with it. And that's often how I would work. I'd say, look, see how you get on with it. The first cycle, if you find that eating lower carb, light meals on the day, something like fish and vegetables, that kind of thing, or eggs and mushrooms, see how you get on with it. If it works well for you on the first cycle, try it on the second cycle. If it doesn't work for you, that's okay. We can, we can work on something else. So it's it's making sure that people have that option. Mm-hmm. It's a long way from doing that though, to somebody fasting completely on the days of chemo. And that's, some of the research is doing that. Many people would find that really too much of a challenge because if people fast completely, then it can make them actually feel very depleted and that can make some of the side effects of chemo worse. So it's getting the right balance for the right person
0: yeah yeah okay. very much so but uh anyway the, the thing that's encouraging is that uh, always in the past if there was any room made for uh adjunctive approaches uh integrative approaches it was always around treatment right well you stop it before the treatment and you don't start it up until after the treatment whereas this is actually looking at the benefits of uh, the, uh, bringing them together the synergistic benefits
2: yes absolutely yeah Talking
1: about the synergistic benefits, going back to the microbiome, which is your specialism. So there's a lot of discussion about how the healthy microbiome determines the effectiveness of some treatments and how conventional treatments and certain foods can work together. Let's say immunotherapies, for example. What's your experience around that area?
2: Uh, that's That's a really interesting area to look at, because I think it's the first time in the whole of my nutrition career that a mainstream group has actually come out. So it's Tim Spector's group at King's that have come out with a paper that says your diet can affect your outcome from cancer treatment. I think when I saw the first report of it, I thought, well, it's not going to go anywhere because it's a bit fringe. I mean, I was so you know, enthusiastic to see the results, but now it's that's just the beginning of this whole area. Um, and I was at a, a, a training, a CPD day at the Royal Society of Medicine where there were lots of people talking about this area. And I know that there's a study, another study going on at the moment where they're using probiotics in women undergoing treatment for breast cancer. And so it's it's opened up a huge area. The thing about the microbiome though is microbiome is absolutely dependent on what you eat. And that's why I think the Tim Spector study, the group there from, from Lee and Spector at King's that showed that link with immunotherapy, that's really, it's it's groundbreaking work. Mm. So I, I hope that that's the start of, I hope that we see a ripple effect where that information goes out further because much of the advice that people receive at the moment, it, it still has to be informed on this whole question of the microbiome, especially things like low residue diets, because that is a, that's an area of a challenge. So yes, I'm, I'm really enthusiastic. And immunotherapy, just one area. I mean, obviously those PD-1, PD-1L inhibitors and the immunotherapy, there's one area. Actually, there's some other research going on with other biological targeted therapies as well looking at that. So it, it seems that finally a door has been opened onto this idea that your diet affects your microbiome and your microbiome can have an impact on your on your outcomes.
1: Mm-hmm. And the challenge is, of course, how do we translate that into clinic mm-hmm. how we as clinicians can actually incorporate that in our consultations, isn't it?
2: That is, and that's a really good point that you make, Penny, because Um, One way that people will try to approach this, quite understandably, is using probiotics. And of course, probiotics might be useful, but some people, they might actually be risky. So there's some question. And I believe that this month is actually blood cancer month as well. And of course, people that have blood cancers, that have had things like stem cell transplants for blood cancers, severely immunocompromised. And therefore, thinking about giving people like that, who've got very permeable gut, after all that treatment, giving them a probiotic carries some risk. I think this area of the microbiome, I think we have to learn to walk before we can run. And I think that simple interventions that can be, that can be impl- implemented for just about everybody is trying to improve dietary diversity, particularly diversity of plant foods because that just about everybody can increase their intake of plant foods. Even on a low residue diet, there are some things that you can have like stewed apple you can have on a low residue diet. So things like that can be helpful. So those are simple interventions that might actually have really quite profound effects. But it is, you're right, it's getting, it's what do you do in the clinic? You know, how do you put it in practice in the clinic? And a very interesting paper that I read literally just a couple of days ago, Look, it was an animal study, okay? But what they actually did was they used short chain fatty acids, which are the compounds that are produced, good microbes in the gut microbiome. They used those in an animal model and with some tissue to see if it improved the immune system and they found the opposite. So what they found was that in the absence of dietary changes, just throwing in, short chain fatty acids as a supplement might not be any good it might actually be an adverse effect so it shows that you can't run before you can walk that actually the dietary changes that i think all clinicians can impart that information they can say increase your range of vegetables try and have a bit more try and have some more fruit have some whole grains like porridge that kind of thing
1: Colorful diet. That's what I'm trying to say to my patients. Is, Is that it? correct? The more it's color you have in your diet, the, absolutely. The, the, the better the chances are you're going to get your nutrients.
2: Yeah, that's a really good way of describing it. That's an excellent way of describing it. Because if people aim for the rainbow on their plate, they're going to have lots of different things that are going to help. And interestingly, those pigments that you that you're looking at when you have a bright diet, those pigments, polyphenols, are actually activated by some microbes in the microbiome. So there's sort of multiple complex interactions between dietary components and the gut microbes, and particularly those polyphenols, and that's the red pigment in red peppers and tomatoes mm-hmm. and purple pigment in things like aubergines, they all are actually helpful for the microbiome. And the microbiome can activate them and make them more beneficial. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah.
0: Now, one of the things that comes up again and again in what you're saying is that, uh, I mean, there are the beginnings here, obviously, of an awareness amongst the uh, oncology community. that There are things, there are aspects uh, that the patient can become involved in that could help. But you're always uh, producing a caveat and saying, well, yes, but probably not in every case. And uh, so there's always really a case, as uh, is always so in cancer, I think, for an expert opinion on these things. Very little of uh, uh, integrated medicine really comes under the DIY category. Um, but uh, it, what it points towards is the need for collaboration, really, between a nutritionist and an oncologist in order to have the the best results. And um, Penny, I know you've begun doing this. So I was quite interested to hear of your experience.
1: Yes, absolutely. I have begun doing this. And first of all, I should say that um, the people I see in clinic, they really are so relieved Their anxiety goes down when they realize that I, as a clinician, a mainstream clinician, collaborate with a nutritionist or an integrative practitioner they feel more empowered they feel happier and that on its own changes changes their psychology completely mm-hmm. but on a practical level and um, my patients get really great benefit because it's that personalization of of nutrition plan that you have described carol and one size doesn't fit all you said it for some people keto diet will be excellent Um, and you need the expert practitioner and I need the expert practitioner to advise my patient what's the right thing to do and I've got at the moment four patients who I jointly consult with a nutritionist and they're doing absolutely fantastic Um, and they as I say feel really that integrative oncology does really work and then spread the message to other people as well
2: that's great. That's really, that's really the way forward, isn't it? Is making sure that the patient gets the gets the best nutrition advice that is also going to adapt with them as they go through their treatment. So that that's really excellent. And of course, from the point of view of nutritional therapists giving advice, they can also make sure that appropriate tests are done. So they might say, actually, can we have a look at this patient's zinc level or something like that so yes that's really that's really excellent and I'm really enthusiastic about this idea of collaborating and it was one of the areas when I did my doctoral research where I actually as part of that I interviewed some practitioners who work with people with a cancer diagnosis and the main thing that they actually wanted to make their practice better and better for their clients was a much more joined up approach, much, much closer collaboration so that they could integrate their practice into the into the lead clinician, into the oncologist's treatment plan, which is, you know, that's really the way it should be. And I, I hope it continues to grow in that direction because um, patients do have a lot to gain. I think one of the things that you mentioned there is that people's anxiety is reduced. That is really important. Because when people go through treatment, there's lots of things that they're worried about. But if they know that somebody is holding their hand along the way and giving them the kind of day-to-day things that they need to nutritional intake, that's really helpful. Definitely reduces their their concerns.
0: Mm.
2: So.
1: And the nice thing is that the families also join
2: yeah, absolutely. Um,
1: which is also very important and you mentioned very very correctly that it's also the testing and the monitoring which i as a clinician can order and um, in collaboration in discussion with a nutritionist so the final thing is the interaction making sure that whatever the patient takes is compatible with what i'm giving so we know that patients use different treatments sometimes on their own and they don't tell their oncologists. By having that collaboration, we ensure
2: that everything they take is compatible. Yeah, that's really good. That's, that's really important because supplements are, a, they are an area of concern for me. Uh, when I, I sometimes see people that they, when I used to see people in person, they carry a bag full of supplements that they've been on the internet, they've got advice from or people have bought for them. And some of those can be positively dangerous. So I think this idea of collaboration is, is uh, you know, really important because some of those things that people might not even be aware of that could cause a problem, even quite simple things that people think, well, it's natural, so it's going to be all right. Um, I think one of the supplements, that uh, there's a couple of bits of research that have come out recently about supplementation that are worth just bearing in mind. And, and it's because sometimes things get sort of a lot of, coverage um, on websites that people are looking at. Vitamin D is one thing that's worth looking at because sometimes I see people that are taking really high doses for a long period of time and that can actually destabilise their calcium level if they're taking really high doses. So that's an an area of research and there's still still advice that people should take a relatively low level. I think this idea, the advice at, at the moment in the UK is that 400 IU is okay for an adult, but actually some research that's just been published very recently suggests that it's gonna be more like 2,000. Again, testing and collaboration is key to that. So having the person's vitamin D tested before they embark on taking a really high dose um, is, is a good idea. And for most people uh, taking that kind of level of 10,000 IU is far too high.
0: Hmm. Jenny, I wonder for any oncology professionals that are listening, whether you'd like to just say a bit about your experience of working uh, with a nutritionist and what, uh, uh, what it adds to your practice, what what the difficulties are, if it's more onerous than not doing it, just, just to give a a feeling of uh, why people might want to do it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so I, collaborate with a nutritionist who lives in the South of England. And obviously I work at the Midlands. So it has to be a virtual um, mm. consultation that I hold regularly for, for my four patients because they all see the same nutritionist. And mm. um, so ideally my vision is that we all going to be in the same clinic and have a joint conversation, maybe a diagnosis. So every patient and diagnosis have a personalized nutrition plan as well as an oncological plan. Mm. We are quite well away from that, but I think that is the beginning to actually create a model like the one I have created and others, of course, um, whereby at least I can have that monthly conversation with the nutritionist, understand where the patient is going, what they need, what they want, what kind of things they've tried, what my experience as a clinician is, what side effects the patient experienced and modify and refine that nutritional plan and share knowledge. I think that's also very important. Um, I am not a nutritionist, but I have learned so much. And equally the person I work with um, has learned so much about actually what it means for patients to, to have chemotherapy. So there are lots of benefits in such a collaboration for the patient, for sharing the knowledge with clinicians, for research opportunities as well. Mm. So I encourage
2: all my colleagues to do that. That's great. Yeah, and I think that, that research that you mentioned, that's really important. I think documenting these kinds of benefits is, is really important. And I I think, you know, where where patients are able to do that, then that's that's going to be really helpful for them. Indeed. Yes.
0: Obviously, uh, an oncologist or oncology practitioner of some kind, uh, if they were completely new to this area, they probably have no idea how to find a suitable person to refer to or to work with, i.e. a nutritional therapist with long experience of working with people with cancer. I just want to mention that the BSIO, the British Society for Integrative Oncology, is the place to go. Uh, Their website, bsio.org.uk, is a great place to get in touch. Mm,
2: That's a good point. And I think uh, where they're looking for appropriately qualified people, because the term nutritionist, can actually be used by people that have got a relatively short training. People that are registered with BANT, which is the British Association for Nutrition and Lifestyle Medicine, they have a minimum standard. So people have to be qualified to degree level and they have to be professionally registered. So I think if people are looking for a, a practitioner, they should make sure that they're BANT registered um and that they're on the cnhc register and that just um assures that they've met the training standard and so on so i think that's uh, you know if they're looking for somebody Hmm. there were just a couple of other areas of just because we're talking about research i've got the kind of opportunity here to mention a couple of other areas and it's actually going back to the low carb bit Hmm. because when people take out carbs what do they put in instead what work would be substituting carbs with the right type of fats rather than more protein. And one area of research which I am really very interested in because it actually also has an impact on the microbiome is actually omega-3 fats. And there's a really nice research group up at the University of Leeds. that has been looking at colorectal cancer and dietary interventions and colorectal cancer recurrence. And what they've actually identified is that omega-3 fats in oily fish are probably prebiotic, which means that they support the growth of good microbes. So when people are making that choice of reducing their carb intake and increasing some foods, then they should actually maybe look at increasing their intake of omega-3 fats. And I just want to mention, because there's actually a study that's just come out, so in fact, May this year, and it's in Frontiers in Nutrition, and it's by Cheng and uh, and Associates. They've actually looked at randomizing patients that have lung cancer to having a supplement of omega-3 or a placebo. In fact, it was vegetable oil. And what they actually found was that there were lower inflammatory markers in the patient. So this was a short-term intervention. So these are people with lung cancer that have been given either fish oil or a vegetable oil. And then their inflammatory levels looked at. And what we know is that inflammation also reflects what's going on in the microbiome. And that actually showed reduced inflammatory markers in the people on the omega-3 fats compared to the people on the vegetable oil. So the kind of take home message for people, if they're thinking about reducing their carbs is make sure that what you substitute are, are some good fats. So maybe swap the chicken for a f- oily fish like mackerel or salmon, for example, and also increase monosaturated fats like olive oil and avocado, because they're also, they're beneficial from the point of view of reducing inflammation. So it's, it's important when people are thinking about these lower carb regimes that they put the right foods in instead when they're taking out carbs.
0: Mm. So
2: it's great to hear that. Great to see that more research is coming out
1: um, around diet and, and cancer. So it's, it's, it looks as if it's very promising for the future, isn't it?
2: I feel that it is, and I I feel I think that that's reflected in the kinds of discussions that I have with my clients when they have seen, particularly with a new diagnosis. Um, I think that that's important, but I think that there's still there's still a lot more work to be done. I think it needs to be done in a collaborative way, and also acknowledging that each person is an individual, because that's in, that's the important thing is that the person gets gets an individualised program for them so that it works absolutely for them. Because obviously somebody with gout, if you start telling them to eat lots of mackerel, it might not be great for their gout. So it's getting the absolutely. right correct.. Right call.
0: Okay. I, also, I'm, I'm interested to know, I mean, there are some things for which, uh, you know, the evidence has been around for years, but of course it wasn't really, it was falling on deaf ears, I think, at that time. And uh, the door's sort of been opened now a bit by some of these uh, recent developments that we've just been talking about. Um, I was thinking particularly of medicinal mushrooms as uh, you know huge raft of evidence of how useful they can be in amongst conventional cancer treatment. Uh, do you think that the you know the the door being opened is going to mean that things like that will actually be, come to the fore a bit? I think they may do.
2: So so the thing with the medicinal mushrooms, they, they are fascinating. I've been using them for a long time. I've been using them in my practice, nearly always Coriolis. And that's because there's good evidence on it but from Japan, where they've done a lot of compatibility studies. So I'm confident in using it with people. And I have written to quite a lot of oncologists and explained what I've recommended. And a few of them have come back and said, yeah, I'm quite interested in that. Mm. I think beyond that, the kind of discussion about mushrooms is, is really good, but is a whole science behind it that needs looking at carefully because the thing about mushrooms is they are really excellent at hoovering up contamination from what they're grown in. So there's a, there's a sort of explosion of mushroom supplements available on the internet, but some of them might be grown in conditions where what you're actually eating is heavily contaminated with heavy metals. And um, there's been some studies that have looked at this um, so, and the reason is it's, it's simply, it's a function of, of mushroom growth. And I know this because part of my masters in microbiology, I did a, a unit on mycology and was always fascinated by the biochemistry of mushrooms. So when you grow mushrooms on clean medium, you get nice clean mushrooms. But if you grow mushrooms on soil or fiber, that's contaminated, then the mushrooms will have that contamination in them. And as I said, it was a study where they actually took samples of mushrooms available within the EU and measured the level of heavy metals in them. So these are things like cadmium, mercury and so on. And they found that some of them were quite heavily contaminated. Mm. So when I'm advising people about mushrooms, I'd say, first of all, buy some mushrooms in the supermarket or the greengrocers and eat them because they're good for you. But if you're buying mushroom supplements, buy them from a reputable source. Don't buy anything that looks cheap because if it is cheap, it might well have been grown in contaminated conditions. Mm -hmm. So that's an area that is worth looking at. It's the same with a lot of supplements is that some, there is some worry about contamination of some supplements and various organizations like MHRA, the Medicines and Healthcare Regulatory Agency, they had a look at supplement, quality and supplement contamination and there have been over the years there have been supplements that have been contaminated with various things. Mm.
0: Thank you all right it's good to hear Um, but also good to hear that you're finding some of the oncologists you're talking to about it are interested as well so that's that's fantastic. Look, uh, we're we're coming to the end. Uh, uh, thank you so much, Carol. You speak so brilliantly, clearly about all this stuff. It's uh, a lay person like me can understand it all, which is brilliant. And um, but uh, you know, you're obviously conveying uh, a vast amount of experience and knowledge that you have on this subject.
2: Thank you. Well, it's it's great to be involved. Thank you for inviting me to to share some information with you. Mm. Great listening to you, Carol. Thank you so much.
0: I really hope this uh, encourages and inspires more people in oncology to take a look. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
2: Nice to talk to you both.
0: Thank you for listening to Cancer Talk. Do subscribe and look out for the next edition of our podcast. And if you have friends and colleagues interested in the development of UK cancer care, do pass on the details of Cancer Talk. Goodbye. Oh,